This is Strategy Taken, a podcast about hard decisions and how strategic leaders in financial services make them, with your host, Luis Sorzella. My guest today is Tiago Garjaka. I worked with Tiago first back when I was doing strategy consulting with McKinsey and Company. And after, I helped him when he was the COO of ProService, which is the largest benefits PEO and HRO company in Hawaii. Tiago is a great executive and he specializes in business transformation. And when we were talking about today's episode, and we were discussing what today's episode should be about, he suggested talking about a large-scale transformation that he led when he was working with U.S. Foods. Now, U.S. Foods is not a financial services firm, which is the focus of this podcast, but that transformation had to be rolled out with all their distributors across the United States. And a lot of companies in insurance and investments are today dealing with similar situations trying to roll out change across their affiliate and independent distributors. Hi, Tiago. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Luis. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. So, Tiago, why is this story interesting? Look, I've been in a number of uh, transformation projects uh, throughout my career, but this one is one that it's near and dear to my heart because we can see the entire transformation from beginning to end. You can see the financial impact on the stock price. And the things that we ended up doing were very significant. From the financial impact perspective, uh, when I joined the company in 2010, uh, we were not publicly traded, but we had phantom stocks. The stock was trading at a roughly $5 uh, per share. When we went public in 2016, we went public already at 25 and if you take a look at today, post-COVID, it's already back at uh, normal levels and it's $40 per share, which I think it's a very good indication of the value that we created. And we created, and, and what we're going to be talking today is how we started, which was through the merchandising transformation, which had three very important uh, pillars. The first one was the introduction of category management into food service. Category management is a practice that has been in retail since the 80s, but had never been able to be successfully introduced in food service until then. The second one was, as we started to see how we could really unlock value through the company, we realized the, uh, the need to actually significantly change our organization structure. So we ended up going and redesigning all the organization and the processes that we had to be able to support the practices that would allow us to really unlock the value. And the third, in order to really uh, scale those new processes and make it sustainable, we ended up introducing big data. And I think that if you take a look at that, that tells a very nice story. Start at the beginning. Um, how did the whole thing start? Yeah, I was starting my beginning because the company has over 100 years and like uh, I don't think we would be able to cover that much ground uh, in, in the podcast. But here's what I can tell you. So I started there in 2010. And one of the things that caught my attention the most when I joined was that the strategy that U.S. Food Service at the time had was to be a copycat or a Me Too company to Cisco, the 
big food service distributor in the United States. It's still the largest one uh, even today. And uh, uh, the kind of conversations that we were having is, hey, we were looking at what Cisco was doing and saying, hey, how can we mirror something like that? Or, hey, like Cisco, because it was like twice our size, had significant economy of scale, how can we go and reduce uh, the gap to actually improve our margins, right? And it was something that was not super exciting if you think about being a Me Too and you see, okay, here's what the big company is doing and how can we do it differently? And then uh, shortly after I joined, uh, we had a couple of changes in the leadership of the company. And there are two names that I think that deserve a lot of credit for this transformation going through. The first one was the newly appointed CEO, John Ladder. He was someone that came from Canada. He was at Loblaws. And he came with the idea of really bringing some of the best practices from retail into food service. And he ended up bringing a lot of talent into the company. But another person that was very important for this overall transformation we're going to be talking to today was Pietro Satriani. And Pietro was the CMO. The time that Pietro joined, uh, John asked me to become Pietro's right-hand person uh, because we were going to go through the transformation. So uh, uh, in the beginning, we ended up doing a number of different focus groups uh, to really understand how companies perceived us. And not surprisingly, what we heard was uh, an extension of what I mentioned in the beginning in terms of being a Me Too. And like, I think that the, 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 the sentence that stands out the most in my mind when I watched some of those uh, focus groups were, hey, food service distributors are just like vanilla ice cream. You can go to any store and order vanilla and it's the same flavor everywhere. And it was something that it was bad news because, look, everybody was kind of mingled together and they didn't see companies separating in any way, shape or form. But it was also awesome news because it created an opportunity to differentiate. And that's what we saw. And we ended up ident uh, trying to or taking a stake to say we're going to differentiate U.S. foods by becoming the most innovative food, uh, food service company out there. And that's what... Marked Can you tell us a little bit of the business of food service? So if you think about the food industry, you have two legs. You have retail and you have food service. Retail, everybody understands. You go to the store and you buy food and you take home and prepare or whatever you're doing. Food service is the business of distributing food to establishments that will serve prepared food. So that ranges from restaurants uh, it ranges from schools, hospitals, prisons, like you name it. Any place like a, a deli in a supermarket, any place that is serving ready-to-eat food would be classified as part of the food service. Oh, thank industry. you. So you were saying that you saw yeah, those uh, focus groups and they were basically saying that uh, they couldn't tell one from the other. Like they were a commodity service uh, and undifferentiated from your competitors. Yes. And it was like the biggest, the biggest thing was price, right? At the end of the day, they were looking at price and actually two things, price and relationship with the salesperson. Those were the two key factors when people were making decisions. What happened decision. next? Yeah. So uh, what happens next is that, look, we had to start the transformation somewhere, right? And when we looked internally, we had the opportunity to transform a number of functions. It could be merchandising, it could be sales, it could be uh, the operations part of it. 
And what we decided, because we wanted to use innovation as kind of the driving engine, we wanted to start with merchandising because merchandising is where you end up making the decisions of like everything related to product, right? It's who you're going to source from, what kind of products you're going to be sourcing, and what is the price that you're going to be putting that product in the market. Uh, and we saw that it, that it was very much aligned. And as I said, like John had just invited Pietro to come on board and bring some of the best practices and try to modernize the merchandising department. And then I think that uh, the way we ended up approaching, and, and Luis, like, I'll follow your lead in terms of how much detail, but let me just give you a quick overview of the transformation we did, because I think there are three very big elements to that transformation. So the first one, we introduced principles of category management uh, into food service. Uh, the second one, after we started to see how much value we could really unlock by changing practices, critical practices like the introduction of category management, we ended up realizing the need for a massive organizational change. And the third one, something that came along as a combination of those two was uh, bringing, like uh, we ended up doing a big data transformation, right? Bringing workflows, leveraging big data in order to really uh, accelerate and uh, uh, in a way that wasn't possible before all the things that we were doing at uh, US Foods. And, and the reason why I chose this story, Louis, and then we can go into more detail in those three if you want, is because, look, we all do lots of big transform uh, transformative projects, but this one is one where you can see beginning uh, from beginning to end in terms of how it actually showed in the company. And you can also see the results, right? So just to give you an idea, when I joined the company, US Foods was not a public company, but it, all, but it had phantom stock, right? At the time that I was there and when I joined, the Phantom stock had been hovering around $5 uh, uh, per share. When we went public in 2016, uh, the company uh, uh, already went with a value of 25 per share. And if you take a look today, like post-COVID, like it went back to the, uh, to the value that the company was right before COVID, right? So it's hovering around $40 per share. And a lot of that has been through the transformation that we implemented. So it's something that you can really see the value being created for all the Can you give one example of how that unlocks value? So first, okay, category management is the discipline to manage categories as business units. Historically, at US Foods, the way, and to be quite honest, and this is something I think is an important point, and this is not US Foods, but category management didn't exist in food service. So, Category management is a practice that has been retailed since the 80s, and it relies on having shelves. In food service, you don't have shelves, you have trucks. So the client doesn't go into the store, look at what he or she wants to buy, and get it from the shelf. You don't have that. The other thing that food service doesn't have is syndicated data. Like you go to any retailer, you have like something like Nielsen that tells you what was bought, what was the price. That kind of information doesn't exist in food service. Right, so we had to take, a, and there are some more complications, right? But we had to take a step back and say, how do we reinvent category management or in the ability to manage a category as a business unit in a place where some of those pillars that are so critical to category management do not exist? And that's what we started to do, right? So we, we started by creating like data that was coming like from seven different databases. It was like a nightmare to be able to pull 
But in order to really understand the cost of a product and all the build outs that happen in the product and be able to uh, uh, teach the organization to give a step back and look at a category in a more, with more strategic lenses and saying, hey, what can we do? And, and I remember, right, like you asked for a specific example, the first category that we did was a, a super easy category, right? Cooking sprays. So we started with that one. And like, I'll ask you a question, right? So uh, in total, in the company, we had 60 SKUs of cooking sprays. And cooking sprays is just like the, the spray that you use on a pan to coat it before you actually go and cook something, like an oil spray. Uh, how many SKUs do you think that was, were carried uh, by all of our divisions? And we had 60 divisions at the time. Like if you, if you put together and stacked every single division, there was not a single SKU that was carried by all the divisions oh. at the same time. And it doesn't make any sense because cooking sprays is as commodity as they come. So for instance, what we did is we created a framework to say, hey, there are some core cooking sprays and we came up with five that every division should carry. And you had like a version of premium, mid-range, and lower price. And you also have like different oils because of allergies that people may need to be aware of or health preferences. Those five, we said, need to be stocked by every single division. And then there were three flavored cook sp cooking sprays that we said, you know what? You have the option of buying those, but you don't need to. It's only if your market really needs it. And we started by bringing this kind of assortment rationalization, and we adjusted pricing. We fixed prices throughout the, uh, the organization. And by doing that, we were able in the pilot to like, uh, uh, so we more than doubled the sales of the category. And if you take a look at profitability, like it was something like three to 400% increase. It's not surprising in the pilot because suddenly the category was receiving a lot of attention, but it showed us it had potential. And then after cooking sprays, we went to wrapping paper. And then we said, you know what? We need to get categories that are more meaningful to the restaurateurs. And then we went to uh, uh, tomato sauce, which is a very sensitive category. And that's how we started bringing the discipline of category management by focusing on conversation, our conversations on assortment, on pricing and really being strategic about how we promote and show off in the market with our. And consumers. then you said that these led to a need to change the organization, right? Yes. And the reason for that is very simple. Uh, the same way we didn't have a single common SKU, like we realized that with 60 different business units, we probably had like 65 different practices for most processes. And the reason for that is because uh, if you think about the way the job of a division, and a division is a geographic market, right? So you had the distribution center in Chicago, you had one in New York, you had one in San Francisco. Like they had full autonomy for all the decisions within the box. And if you think about that, for a company, like uh, at the time that like uh, we are talking, US Foods was a, like a, 22, $23 billion company, right? Like, but it wasn't behaving like such. It was behaving like a collection of hundred, uh, a million to $500 million uh, dollar companies. And the buying power of those companies were severely uh, constrained because of the way we were behaving. 
And I mentioned in the beginning that we ended up doing the rebranding, uh, like the same way that uh, the division president had a opportunity to decide which SKUs to carry, what price to charge. They had the opportunity to do whatever branding they wanted, right? And that's why we said, you know what? Let's stop it. We have one company. It's US Food. And that's what we started to build around. The, the change that we ended up impacting in merchandising was very significant. When we did category management, as I said, we realized the benefits of being able to centralize some of those decisions and negotiate directly with vendors. So what we did is everybody that had merchandising or marketing in their titles, and now we are talking about probably like 600 people uh, throughout the company, had to basically reapply for positions, right? We redesigned the work in order to bring a lot of the strategic decisions to the headquarters, because that's where our best negotiators were gonna be put, and that's where we could control better the relationships with the vendors. We created regions which didn't exist before, and the regions were responsible for helping validate the strategy, pressure test, and provide feedback to change in, uh, with the headquarters, but also work with the divisions on ensuring implementation, and the business units or the divisions were responsible for execution primarily. So that was a significant change to the way we were operating versus before. Again, before it was a collection of independent uh, markets doing whatever they thought was the best thing for their market. Now it was a much more structured way of approaching uh, this entire transformation. And by doing so, that and, and just to be clear, right, we didn't do this transformation because we said, hey, uh, someone in the past has done this kind of transformation, it works, right? No, we started by testing the waters with the approach to category management. We saw that worked. Then we went around all the business units and looked for best practices and said, hey, if it's done this way here, it can be done the same way in other places. And by that, we started to identify a number of levers to really unlock value within the company. But those could only be executed with that uh, organizational change. And like I would say, it took us about seven months to actually come up with the design of the new organization. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because we, we really involved people from the field. We didn't want to just do it from, with people from the headquarters. And then it took us about, uh, I would say, uh, uh, between nine to 12 months to roll out all the organization changes and send up the new processes. So it was a rather lengthy process, but the reason we ended up opting to do it that way is because by doing it like that, we were able to ensure better buy-in uh, with the people that we were working with. Yeah, you're describing something that in my experience is a really tough sell. You're selling a big strategic transformation like you're changing the way you do your business. Uh, and before you can actually see the results, you need to also sell a change in the, in the organization that actually changes the powers and responsibilities of a lot of people that have a lot to lose in, in this situation. How did you approach yep. that? Look, and there is one more complication, Luis, to what you just said. It was the fact that we didn't have a clear burning platform. The company was profitable and was doing well, right? So lots of people were questioning, why do you want to change something that has been working for so long? So uh, breaking that 
was, I would say, probably the hardest thing. And one of the key lessons that I've learned, right? And I've been uh, in a number of different transformation efforts through my, throughout my life, right? And part of it is because I really like the complexity. Like, it is very clear that if the CEO is not fully bought in, it won't happen. The way uh, we ended up doing this is uh, it was clear earlier on when we started working on, okay, what are the uh, levers that we can use to create value? Uh, that we were only going to be able to crack some of the bigger ones if we were going to centralize the decision-making. Centralizing the decision-making for merchandising meant removing that decision from the division uh, from the division president and putting that into the center. That was a huge paradigm shift from what they were used to doing because, look, like they saw that we were reducing the role of the president, right? And it was not what we wanted to do. We wanted to focus the presence on these things that they could add the most value, which is selling, being present with our clients, understanding the feedback. But they didn't need to be spending time making decisions that were suboptimal. Like that, like, uh, like it took us, as I said, seven, it was between seven and eight months to make design, like uh, uh, to be with 80% of the design. And the reason why it took us that long is because we brought in like very important uh, division presidents, people that carried trust in the organization to be, to be part of the design project. So when we were having the conversations, it wasn't Tiago, the guy from uh, strategy and from the merchandising group standing up and saying, hey, yeah, that's what we need to do, right? It was Steve, the, the former division president uh, of Division X, that was standing up and saying, guys, this is the way we, we need to do it. And that helped, but that wasn't enough because we still had some of our biggest divisions and divisions pres division presidents that were extremely successful that still didn't believe it was the right thing to do. And then it was John Letter, and I think that he deserves a lot of credit for that, who was hammering the message and saying, guys, this is the direction we are going and this is why. And we were supporting with the data, but he was unwavering on his commitment to make this happen. And Luis, I can like, look, I could say it was easy and like it was the once and done, but it was probably like a series of, I don't know how many conversations with uh, the division presence, right? Where monthly we were hammering the same message, talking about the benefits, combining new learnings of best practices from different divisions uh, and, and sharing that credit throughout the organization to bring them along. It was one of the hardest things that we've ever done, but anyone that has been on that transformation looks back as probably one of the best things they've done with their yeah, career. Yeah, it is. Um, I think I'll have nightmares for a couple of days just from your description. Like the, the experience <laughs> that I've had is that in these situations, one mistake that you cannot make is to assume that everybody is going to have the same motivations as you. So even if a transformation is good for the company, which not everybody agrees it is, even in this situation, like people have different goals and different objectives. Like some of them take a very dispassionate view of the business that they're running and they're in it for the money. Some of them, they actually identify themselves with their with their babies. Some of them, they are closer to retirement and are already like worrying about other things. People have very different 
perspectives in when you get to these conversations? Look, I think we faced every one of the cases that you mentioned. <laughs> Again, with 60 divisions, right? We had lots of people that we had to work with. And, and John was clear from the beginning saying, guys, you can choose to be in or out. But make no mistake, this is the way we are going and we would like it to be in. And there was a lot of convincing and conversations to show that this was the right way. But you're absolutely right that some people want to optimize for themselves. And I will tell you, the hardest conversations that we had were with our biggest and best business units because they would not be necessarily better off for every single category. Look, vendors looked at U.S. Foods as a portfolio, despite the fact that U.S. Foods was looking itself as a collection of companies. So they had the aggregate margin that they were doing for U.S. Foods. If we were to improve on that, we would have to negotiate a lot with vendors. But in order to do that, sometimes the biggest division saw actually the profitability of a specific category decreasing, while the profitability of that category for the entire company was increasing significantly. And having that conversation with those division presidents was something that was very hard to explain. Hey, it's probably not optimal for you, but it's much better for the company. And here's why. And that's why the importance of making sure that people understood that they were stakeholders of U.S. Foods, not U.S. Foods Chicago, not of U.S. Foods San Francisco, right? U.S. Foods San Francisco is not traded. U.S. Foods is, right? So it took a lot of convincing, especially because they had been operating like that and for decades. you mentioned that after the the introduction of category management and the reorganization of the company, the final stage was to incorporate big data into your strategic decisions, right? Yes. Despite the fact that we really liked our Excel spreadsheet that was being fed from seven different databases. Who doesn't like spreadsheets? I can tell Who you doesn't that it like Excel some... spreadsheets, exactly, right? right? <laughs> I, just to generate the data pools, like for that, like because it was massive amounts of data, like it was like a, a day's work for you to have like a spreadsheet done. It was painful and it was very slow. Right? So it was clear that it was not sustainable and scalable. And again, we had the benefit of looking at retail and like if you go to retail, there are a lot of companies that have done uh, assortment optimization, pricing optimization, promotions optimization. And we said, hey, we need to be able to borrow some of those elements. We could not go to a retail-ready solution because the logic for B2B is completely different than the logic for B2C. But at the end of the day, we wanted to uh, optimize assortment. And because it was the first time in food service that that was being done, there was no company in the market that was ready to go. So we ended up doing like a very extensive search to identify companies that we could see ourselves partnering, partnering with, understanding that it would be a co-build model, where they were going to be learning about the industry with us, and we were going to be learning about the models and what it could be with them, and doing the tweaks. And what we ended up doing is building the engine to do assortment optimization, not only the uh, which products to take away, right, but also recommendations of, hey, similar customers uh, tend to buy this kind of product. Or if you're going to offer something to this client, to this restaurant, this is the one more likely to go next. We did it for pricing and we did it for promotion. Those are the three that we started with. And then in parallel, because 
that kind of data was completely new to the company. And we didn't have people ready to go and start playing with those data, data sets, not in the numbers that we needed, right? Because all the category managers would need to start doing so. We ended up creating workflows and designing workflows and say, ha, you want to do an assortment optimization. Here are the seven steps you're going to go through. And we designed the tool to be able to walk you through each one of those steps, uh, uh, prompting questions, suggestions, thoughts, and developing templates that people could follow to be able to really go and execute. And again, this was transformative for the company because suddenly we were able to do what we had been doing kind of skunks work at scale. And the methodology that we developed was, again, this was not brand new to the company, it was brand new to the industry, right? Like, so we were recognized as like the thought leaders for this specific area uh, in the industry and asked and invited to talk about what we were doing in a number of places. And I believe like later on, Cisco tried to acquire US Foods. I do believe that the uh, changes we made to merchandising were part of the drivers for that decision because Cisco at the time did not manage their categories the same way. Uh, and I believe that they could benefit from learning how I we think would... I should repeat again. Tiago is one of my go-to experts in transformations. Thank you very much, uh, Tiago, for this story. No, thank you for inviting me and thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best with the, with thank the podcast. You. Thank you for listening. If you are open to knowing more, you can subscribe to our podcast and find us on thestrategytaken.com.